There's really not much to say to intro this conversation, except that it was amazing. I loved it. Listening back to it, I loved it even more. Um, the only thing you really need to know is I recorded this about 10 days ago or so at the American Association of Religion Conference in San Antonio. I didn't have my whole setup with me, so we are sharing one microphone, but I think it still sounds great, so just enjoy. Okay, so I'm here with Robert P. Jones. You're the CEO of Public Religion Research Institute. You write for The Atlantic, for Time, and you have a new book and other books. We're going to talk about the new book in a little bit, so we'll save that. All right. Uh, I met you because I'm here at the American Academy of Religion conference, and you were a panelist on like a panel and f- group forum for what do we do now that Trump won, essentially, was the question, and yeah. it was a special forum. And you were charged with kind of giving the lay of the land. And one of the main things that you said was, let's not overreact to the election results if we're just looking at the data. So I'm going to have you explain what you meant by that. But first, can you give us a little more background about where you come from and what people can expect? Yeah, so I'm CEO of PRRI, stands for Public Religion Research Institute, and we're a nonpartisan, nonprofit research organization that really has a specialty in kind of religion, culture, and politics. Um, So that's kind of our sweet spot. Uh, My background, I'm from the South. I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, I went to Southern Baptist College and Southern Baptist Seminary, and then my PhD at Emory, and uh, we founded PRI about uh, six years ago now, Uh, 2010. So you're saying you're a Baptist, and yet we should still trust you to be objective. Yeah, you're from the Northwest. I forget about this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Every time you said the word Baptist, my suspicion grew. Yeah, yeah, yeah no. So we are nonpartisan. It's all, you know, data, uh, and you can find it all on our website. If you're skeptical, yeah. you can sort of, you know, check out the methodology. Uh, yeah, okay, okay. So you cautioned us at the opening remarks of this panel um, that we shouldn't overreact to the election results or the polling, yeah. which was actually pretty accurate. Uh, overall standards. What are some ways that people are typically overreacting right now? Yeah. Uh, well, I might make a, a distinction between, I think what I did say, uh, just to be careful about it, is I don't think people should over-interpret, over-interpret. the results Sorry, of the polls. Okay. They can overreact all they want, because I think <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the results of the election are quite large. But what I'm, the point I was trying to make is that the distance we had to travel to get these great results was not very far. I see. So if you compare the 2012 exit polls, the 2016 exit polls, it's really hard to find any demographic group that is more than 10 points different than it was in in 2012. So it's just enough movement and enough of the right places to get us there. You know, one couple of examples I've been giving is, you know, if you were to give me 110,000 votes, I could flip three states with 110,000 votes. I could flip uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania with just that amount of votes. So that gives you a sense of just how close this election was. And if that had happened, we, you know, we'd be having a different conversation. And, the, and that kind of red-blue map would look dramatically different, even though just a few votes shifted here and there. And that's the crucial difference between overreaction and overinterpretation. Yeah. So people can react however they want to react to the fact that Trump will be president— they can react to the fact that whoever won the popular vote will not be president, yeah. but they shouldn't overinterpret. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it looks like their votes are still coming in, you know, and, and uh, Hillary Clinton's tally is getting bigger because most of those votes are West Coast 
votes. I mean, yeah. the last time I looked, it's one point six million. Uh, she's, this uh, this she's morning, one point seven two. All right, so yeah, like I looked yesterday, it was like one point yeah. six. So yeah, every day, you know, it's going up. So it, she's going to win by more than one percent. Um, you know, maybe even two percent by the time it's all said and done, which is exactly where the national polls kind of had her. They had her up by three or four, depending on which poll you look at. That's right in the zone. Um, but yet. You know, with the way the Electoral College works, and especially those upper Rust Belt states, um, just enough of them fell the, the wrong way to give us what, in, at the end, is a fairly dramatic result. Okay, so my uh, amateur understanding of the, the state of polling is that the national averages were pretty much on, but there was some polling misses, especially in yeah. some of those Rust Belt states. So can you tell us what did the polls miss? Yeah. So here's the truth. Like, if anybody tells you they know the answer to that question, they're lying. Um, we're still figuring this out, and it probably yeah. will not be for another couple of months until okay. we have, like, data-based answers to that question. Um, but the hints that we have so far is that there were a couple things going on. Um, at the state level, um, it's harder to get quality polls. You don't have as many quality polls to work with, right? So even if you're relying on averages, you're averaging polls that may not have the same kind of quality. Maybe they're only landline. They're not calling cell phones. Uh, so they're overestimating, you know, one way. The other thing that happens is, you know, whether or not like all the mechanics of a poll are working well, the hardest decision a pollster has to make who's trying to model an outcome on a day. And you know, it's worth remembering that polls are really meant to be snapshots in time. They're really not to, meant to be oracles for the future. Yeah. Um, but we need to use them that way in some ways. So what pollsters end up doing is instead of making them a snapshot in time and they turning them into an oracle for the future, what you have to do is you have to tweak your sample to make it look like what you think the turnout is going to look like on election day. right? So you have to do these things called likely voters. Well, what are likely voters? They are what pollsters decide uh, the electorate's mm. going to look like, and you know, you do that based on past turnout. And but at the end of the day, you have or to make people some, saying, "I'm enthusiastic, I will yeah, be right. voting," or yeah. whatever. But at the end of the day, you have to make a human decision about how right. much you're going to weight those different things. Mm. And the guesses were quite bad. You know, they they overestimated Clinton's coalition turnout in many of these Rust Belt states and underestimated uh, the turnout of kind of white Christian and white working class voters. And that's that's where you get the miss. Is it too early to diagnose a lesson from those cumulative misses, or do, do we need more data? You know, I, I think it's hard. I think we're going to have to wait and, and, and really see, um, you know, where we, where we come out um, on this. Um, the one thing I, I will say is that there has been floated that there still is not very much evidence for, uh, not to say that we may not have it, but right now this idea of the shy Trump voter that was just not yeah. willing to tell pollsters that they were supporting Trump – I still think we don't have any good evidence that that was going on. It's much more about people who turned out who people thought were unlikely to turn out at the end of the day. Okay. So it does feel, though, I think to a lot of people, like there is something significant to learn from the fact that Trump won, whether or not the polling was close or whether or not it was off. Meaning it feels like a big political moment in our history for a number of potential reasons. I had people texting me the night of the election, and a lot of people said or thought, how in the world is this even possible for Donald Trump to win the presidency? Now, I don't want to ask you to pontificate on the state of everyone's minds, but from the data, do you see anything that helps explain how so many people could have been so flabbergasted by that outcome? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's worth remembering that there was some of the sentiment, you know, back when George W. Bush got reelected in 2004. I mean, there was a whole Michael Moore, dude, where's my country uh, reaction. You know, True. That was similar, I think, in feeling. But I think this feels much even more than that. Um, and I think it's because, you know, in, in my book, I talk about this and, and this kind of growing demographic, you know, that is not Trump's demographic, right? And the sense that those demographics are just going to overwhelm, you know, so to be basically white, older, rural, you know, Christian voters. And that's a kind of, it is in fact a shrinking pool of voters over against this kind of much more diverse, younger, more urban uh, group more and, and much more ethnically diverse uh, group. And that all of those things are still true. And I think that's why it caught people so off guard is because every time you look at those trends, they forecast a future where no political party is going to be able to be successful if they don't widen their tent and get beyond kind of old white Christian voters. I remember reading a lot of pieces to this effect of sort of like, look, here's why he can't win. Here's how much worse Romney did. Here's how much worse, you know, whatever. And here's this population that's shrinking and shrinking. And even if you think Trump is going to overperform with sort of white evangelicals, which he did, uh, it's still not enough. Why was it enough? Yeah, well, I'm back to just amount, just enough in just the right places, right? It wasn't enough overall. It's important to remember that. It was not enough, right? Uh, like I said, Hillary's going to be looking at maybe 2%, right, that she won. Um, it's just that, man, those Rust Belt states, uh, and one of the things that I think people over uh, don't realize, like when I say something like about white Christian voters, you think about Alabama, right, or Mississippi or Tennessee. But in fact, the highest density, like in population of white Christians in any state is places like Wisconsin, right? And, uh, you know, West Virginia, the Appalachian region, but also the upper Midwest. I mean, those are some of the, um, and we did some analysis after the election that showed you can predict Trump support more reliably by just looking at the density of, like what proportion of a state is white and Christian than you can uh, what proportion of the state is white and working class. Like it is actually a more powerful correlation. Uh, White and Christian is more powerful to predict Trump than white and working class. So my reaction to that last statement is twofold. One, how fortunate for you that your (laughs) polling company focuses on religion. Uh, But secondly, this is a good transition to your book, which is about white Christian America. So if we're going to start thinking about white Christian America as having such a profound voice in all of this, what do you have to say to us in your book about that demographic? What's What's the thesis of your book? Yeah. Well, I mean, the thesis is, uh, I mean, I begin with an obituary for white Christian America, and I end with a eulogy, so that gives you a hint as to what my thesis is, and I call the book The End of White Christian America. But um, but, but essentially what I realize is that, you know, there's been a lot of talk about uh, when the U.S. is going to become a, ma- a majority, quote, minority country, and that number's been skating back. When they originally announced that uh, shift, the first year Obama was in office. So the first year we have an African-American president was the first year that the Census Bureau also says in 2050, we're going to be a majority minority country, right? That's like a, that's a one-two punch for a certain kind of American voter. No, I think that's right. How, it's hard to gauge depth in individuals' minds and convictions, but in your opinion, because I remember growing up being like 15, right? So this is 18 years ago and people are telling me, we're going to be a minority soon. Actually, that yeah. I, that was a Southern accent, but I was from California. <laughs> but I even want to retell it in that voice yeah. because 
I was an evangelical in San Jose, California, and there was fear about becoming a racial minority in like the privileged Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking if that's something that I heard routinely in San Jose, it's got to be pretty deep uh, of a question. How big of a factor do you think that stat alone, or especially that stat combined with the first black president, how formative was that toward this maybe white Christian or white identity yeah. that got Trump elected. Well, I mean, I want to add one more layer to the white Christian freakout sure. uh, story yeah. here, and and, <laughs> and it's it's the issue of gay marriage, right? So if I usually like if I have like one slide to show people and can do that on podcast, but I'm gonna we'll do a little imaginary slide nice. on the podcast. Uh, so the first one is uh, the percent of Americans who identify as white and Christian, right? And we're just gonna draw a little chart in our heads from during Barack Obama's presidency, 2008 to the present. 2008, uh, 54% of the country is white and Christian. That number today is 43, right? So during the tenure of our first black president, we've gone from being a majority white Christian country to a minority white Christian country. The other issue to kind of put on the same little grid uh, goes the other way. Um, It is how many Americans support same-sex marriage. 2008, only 4 in 10 Americans support same-sex marriage. That number today is 6 in 10, right? So if you are a conservative white Christian, that is a head-spinning amount of change, right? For an issue you've been all in opposing, a president, first African-American president from the opposing party, and your own demographics slipping, and then let's also throw in the Great Recession. I mean, it's a pretty volatile mix of stuff, and I think, really, it's like, you know, we're going to do an equation now. It's this plus this plus this plus this equals Trump. Yeah, that makes sense. Wow. Yeah, those numbers, you mentioned those last night at the panel, and those numbers are pretty staggering, especially that... 20 percent a 20 point change in same-sex marriage in eight years yeah. is that's insane no, for a big no social issues really that you can you know the closest thing is actually marijuana um legalization of marijuana we, we see a big uptick it's not quite that big but you know abortion is essentially unchanged over this last you know really over 30 years you don't see any changes in on the issue of abortion and most issues if they are changing i mean it takes a whole generation to change not like Eight years uh, to change. What about previous data for civil rights questions? Was there ever like, you know, or I guess you you wouldn't want to say opposing a particular war like Vietnam, because that's not as deep of a conviction as maybe same-sex marriages. But are there any things about like the protest movement in the 60s and 70s that changed that much in a 10 10 or so year period to your your knowledge? I mean, I can't think of anything that, like you said, that goes to a kind of cultural identity. I mean, that's the thing is that, that, you know, when the Christian right was sort of forming in the 70s and 80s, um, it was really, I mean, there were really two things. Abortion was sort of like a third thing. Like the first things were about race um, and uh, like actually what galvanized it was uh, evangelicals organizing to resist um, the government telling Bob Jones University that it had to get rid of its interracial dating prohibitions um, oh and they, are they were going to lose their federal funding. I mean, that's what really galvanized yeah. conservative Christians in the South uh, to become politically active. Um, and then, but then right behind that was gay rights, um, was opposing gay rights. And so that's been in the kind of Christian conservative movement's DNA from the very beginning. So I think many liberals and, you know, since you're on the West Coast, I'll, I'll, you know, coastal elites, uh, you know, I think underestimate like what a nuclear event the Obergefell decision was last year. And again, it was just last year, you know, that, that legalized gay marriage 
across the country, they remember 2004 when George W. Bush got handily reelected running on this values voters platform. There were a dozen constitutional amendments prohibiting gay marriage all passed. Uh, that was just 2004. And here we are and, you know, here we are today. All that's been wiped from the slate. I really do. It really is. It's economic. Absolutely. But this cultural stuff is what I think really gives it its power. On a previous episode, I had Michael Lee Anderson on the podcast who I actually just had lunch with today and we were talking about this as well. But one of the things he mentioned in his argument on that previous episode is that Obergefell and Roe v. Wade, these big Supreme Court decisions, they tend to have these huge cultural backlashes on the other side of that Mm -hmm. decision. So do you think it's possible that Obergefell being decided by the Supreme Court, for instance, and not the state's contributed in some way to Trump's win? You know, I, I, not directly. I, mean, I do think what it, what it did, it, it just became like one more example of cultural loss, right? And so you think about these many, you know, white Christians in the country had this sense that, you know, the moral majority, that language that they used uh, so much, um, that they really believe that. And, in, and really in the 70s and 80s, you know, there was some truth to it. I mean, the country was with them on gay rights in the 70s and 80s, and in and many ways even on uh, gender roles and kind of how people thought about gender roles, they were with them, but not today. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's this sense that they've lost the center of the country. Or they are no longer the center of the country. It's, it's that bigger sentiment, and all of this is a piece of... Uh, you know, the gay marriage stuff is a piece. The black man in the White House is a piece. The Their loss of their own demographics. And one more thing I'll say to the demographic piece that I think makes this more personal for so many of them is they've lost the younger generation. So when they're looking at their churches and they're seeing their grandchildren and their children's, you know, friends no longer flocking to the churches the way they did a generation ago, I mean, that's a pretty palpable thing as well that you're seeing even on the inside you're losing uh, grip on the new generation. We've now just even kind of slipped from talking about the Trump voter to the churchgoer, but I want to ask you what the data says about that. You yeah. talk about when they look at their church congregations, what percentage are we talking about, uh, if you can guess, Trump voters, or if the data tells us, yeah. Trump voters who go to church at least every other week or something like yeah. that? Uh, I'm not sure. I get, it's, it's actually in the exit poll, so if I had them in front of me, I can tell yeah. you. I don't have it off yeah. the top of my head. But um, here's the thing about that stat is um, it always gets trotted out because the exit polls include it, right? But it's essentially measuring a very particular slice of the Christian community more than another because um, there are two. there's essentially two groups in the country who attend religious services very, very often. Let's say more than four in ten uh, or, or four in ten of them at least attend, and that is white evangelical Protestants who voted 81% for Trump. But the other group that attends at that rate are African-American Protestants who voted 80% for Hillary Clinton, right? So they have these kind of two very different... Uh, so, so essentially, the you know, anytime I hear somebody say, oh, Americans who attend church weekly vote for Republicans, like it's really only true for whites. It's not really true uh, across the board. Yeah. Um, so having said that, I mean, there, we did see this, this um, as we always do, but in this, in this instance, the logic is a little paradoxical, right? That the more you go to church, the more likely you were to support Trump if you're white. Um, but I, that if you're white thing is important. Yeah. Back to the issue of gay marriage. Is, is that issue the one, you point to it as being sort of like, it's the clearest correlation yeah. with sort of the, the death of the social conservative movement. Do you think it's central because it's the last one of the big ones that they still could 
have won? Do you think it's significant because it's the one that's sort of current was until recently currently up for legislation? Or do you think it is the central issue because it actually gets at the argument over, say, the Bible? Mm-hmm. What in your opinion? Yeah, um, it's interesting because abortion still the country's as, as divided on that issue as they ever have been. Right. Yeah. Um uh, so it, these issues have kind of gone their own way. And, you know, again, just a decade ago, you would tend to hear in politics abortion and same-sex marriage mentioned in the same sentence all the time. Yeah. And you don't hear that anymore because they kind of diverge. I think what happened was um, they lost both in the court of public opinion and in the courts, in the actual courts, at the same time. And, and so I think that sort of double whammy made it an issue. So then it became really clear they weren't going to dial that back uh, once that happens. I mean, if you only lose in the courts, but you still have public opinion, you might think, okay, you know, we'll we get another appointment. You know, we'll be able to kind of maybe turn this back, or even vice versa. If you win the other way, where you might be able to kind of make some progress in the other one, but losing in both, I think it's just a clear sign that they've lost this issue. But that's why we got all this language around religious liberty, right? That was about a kind of rear guard effort. So if we lose this war, where can we win some battles um, as we've been kind of driven from the field, essentially? But what's interesting about that, I think, in this election cycle is that I think that, I mean, this was essentially Ted Cruz's bailiwick. I mean, he was all over the religious liberty thing. He went to Indiana, stood by Mike Pence. Uh, when that whole fiasco went down in Indiana, um, he spoke up about that every chance he got. And what's interesting is that I think evangelical voters at the end of the day thought that, I think, was too small a battle to fight. And I think they saw it for what it was, essentially a, a kind of surrendering the bigger issue and how can we win kind of around the edges of things, you know, after we've lost the bigger question. And, you know, I've kind of thought about the reason why evangelists went with Trump over Cruz. And I think one reason is that, you know, Cruz was sort of, you know, talking about the bathroom bills in North Carolina and, and the religious liberty fights in Indiana. And at the end of the day, I think evangelicals decided they'd rather, they didn't want like this kind of put it maybe in a pithy way, like, they didn't want a bathroom fight. They wanted a barroom fight, right? And Trump was more willing to give them the barroom fight. A brawl, yeah. yeah. Interesting. I'd like to hear you name a couple narratives, if you can, on the right and the left each, about the election results that you don't think are borne out by the data. (laughs) And just come up with as many as you can. They're like, that's false, that's false. Yeah. All right, on the right, uh, this may be easier, that evangelicals held their nose and voted for Trump. Okay, I've heard that a lot. Why yeah. is that wrong? Uh, they did not hold their nose. Um, that's why that's wrong. They- how do you how do you measure? Because I met plenty yeah. of nose holders. Yeah, I mean, just in my conversations with them, one to one. How do you measure on a national scale yeah. nose holding? Yeah. So clearly, you can find some who did right, and there were some who did. But you know, if you look at the data and you ask, okay, how about Trump's major policy platforms? Let's talk about building a wall. Evangelicals, 7 and 10, favor that. Temporary ban on Muslims, 7 and 10 evangelicals favor that. So you start kind of running out of places where they're holding their nose at the end of the day. And I, I think the, the truth of the matter is, is that, yes, for some evangelicals, it's uncomfortable to admit that they were really for building a wall, keeping immigrants out, that they really did have negative feelings about immigrants and Muslims and African Americans. If you ask about uh, racial resentment, uh, for example, uh, we have a survey question says um, basically that today discrimination against whites 
is as big a problem as discrimination against blacks and other minorities. Seven in ten evangelicals agree with that statement. Oh, my gosh. So, you know, it, it, I, I sort of run out of places to look for where evangelicals are holding their nose. In fact, they were quite with Trump on most of these basic tenets. Uh, two-thirds of evangelicals say it bothers them when they run into immigrants who speak mostly English, right? So there's a, even a kind of visceral discomfort um, here. So, you know, if somebody else lays out a bunch of data that sort of shows me that it really was about abortion and a Supreme Court appointment, and that's all it was about, and all this other stuff didn't matter, like, you know, we could have a debate, but all the data that I look at looks like they were basically with Trump all the way up and down his uh, his policies. Except for maybe his explicit caught-on-tape remarks about women or something like that. They would be em- sure. embarrassed by that. Well, here... Here's okay, the, do you have more? Do you have data? Do, yeah. Oh, no. So oh, no. here's the thing, right? Oh, so, no. so I just wrote this piece for Time magazine this weekend, and it was looking exactly at this, this problem. So why wasn't there a revolt when the kind of Access Hollywood stuff came out and Trump essentially admitted to sexual assault? And, you know, we already know he's on record bragging about having extramarital affairs and has said he's never asked for forgiveness in his whole life. I mean, you know, it, you, you, I could go on and on. But the, the real uh, clincher is that we, we had a question that we asked in 2011 that was around actually when the first round of things came out around Anthony Weiner and his texting issues. Um, yeah. And so we asked a question in that context, and we said, do you think it's possible uh, for a politician to commit immoral acts in their private life and still behave ethically and fulfill their duties in their public life? Only 30% of evangelicals in 2011 said yes to that question. Uh, you know, drum roll, please. Uh, the, yeah. the number, uh, when we re-asked this question, yeah. and this election cycle is 72%. So white evangelicals now are more likely to say that a politician can make this distinction between their private and their public life than non-religious Americans are. In other words, if you, more than non-religious. Yes, more than non-religious Americans, yes. If you, say for instance, you know, could Bill Clinton have still been a good president even though he received oral sex in the Oval right. Office? And I, I bet if you had the data for that question asked yeah. back then, it would have been. Yeah, we didn't ask it back then, but but there's plenty of, you know, so Pat Robertson, for example, you know, went ballistic in the 90s about Bill Clinton and called him, you know, was turning the you know, White House into the Playboy Mansion and was this, you know, terrible person and needed to be kicked out. And what did he have to say to Donald Trump when he had him on the Christian Broadcasting Network? <laughs> oh, no. His closing comments to Donald Trump were, you inspire us. Instead of turning the White House into the Playboy Mansion, <laughs> we're just going to turn Trump Tower now into the White House and he can so, just stay there. And it's already the Playboy yeah, Mansion. Yes. But, you know, but that kind of I don't even know what to call it, right? Conflict, uh, hypocrisy um, is is it's pretty. I mean, it's just out there. It's documentable. It, it's mm. it, it's just very clear that what happened this election, you know, it's certainly the end of moral values as a kind of political brand, and uh, and I really think it it is um, pretty much the complete destruction of evangelical political ethics. This is literally the most depressing conversation <laughs> I've had since the election, Great. but it's also Great. it's fascinating. Yeah. And there might be, editorially speaking, there might be some soil in the destruction of the religious right for something new to grow. Um, maybe something that, like in the words of a lot of Catholic ethicists, embraces a, um, a complete and unilateral ethic of life rather than, well, we care about fetuses, but we yeah. don't care about people once they're born. That's a yeah. obviously an unfair right. characterization, but maybe there will be a new movement, a, a youth-led movement toward these moral questions. 
they will be different, and obviously you're not going to see gay marriage yeah. in that list. Yeah, but. I mean, usually, I, I mean, this is a great point. I mean, so what happens, right, over time is that you do sometimes get these generational changes, right, where, you know, a generation goes off the grid a little bit, and then the new generation goes, wait a minute, let's rethink this. Like, this is not, this doesn't seem right to us. The problem with renewing evangelicalism from within is that uh, evangelicals have lost so many of the younger voices. They've left. They've left to become unaffiliated. So that generation that would have been there to be the kind of internal critics and internal kind of yeast or, you know, to ferment and kind of build something new are now no longer even in the category. And so I think that becomes a real challenge for the evangelical um, just to give you an example, I mean, if you look at seniors today, about three in ten seniors are white evangelical Protestants, right? So it's like a third of that that cohort. But if you look at Americans under the age of thirty, it's only one in ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they've lost two thirds of their market share just over the generations that are alive two today, right? Um, so it's a pretty challenging environment. And the ones that have stayed have been the ones that have been more on board with the kind of Christian right, politicized, partisan agenda. Uh, and it's the people who had problems with that that have kind of left. And so unless there's some way for them to return to the fold, and but I think most of them aren't going to do that. Well, and I think that I, I'll probably end up doing an episode about this uh, if keeping the label evangelical is tenable mm-hmm. for certain people. But a quick example from this podcast, Danielle Mayfield, who has been on it twice now, in our private conversations, and I think she might have said on the episode, her first episode, that if Trump won, because I'm always I'm always pushing her on this. She she lives among refugees. Mm. She embraces you know these sort of liberation tendencies of, of in her theology, but she's always kept the term evangelical and sort of playfully. I, I've always kind of given her crap about that. Yeah. I, I I know I'm not an evangelical just just because of any of the definitions of what it means, and I always kind of give her a hard time about being one. And she said, you know, if he wins, I I probably will have to drop that label. And and she. She texted me on Wednesday after the mm. election. She's like, I'm, I'm dropping it. I, mm. I have to. I can't. That's too much. Like, yeah. I can't. If I stay, I, now I'm speaking for her, but I think her idea is if I stay, I'm going to spend the rest of my time apologizing for this and explaining it. And that's not maybe the best use of my time. Yeah. Daniel, you can come back on and correct me if that was wrong. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, Russell Moore, right, at the Southern Baptist Convention has been a really consistent voice. He said last summer that he was having the same thoughts. Like, you know, if this is what evangelical means... Like, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. And he's the he's like officially on staff at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission at the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest evangelical denomination uh, in the country. And, you know, and right before the election, I mean, he was speaking and he and he, he kind of called it out. I mean, to his credit, kind of called it out and said, you know, what this looks like to me is a political agenda looking for a gospel uh, suited to fit it. And, you know, if that's what it is. That's pretty hard to defend. And you're saying that it sure looks like it from the data. Yeah. No, I think it does. I, I think Russell Moore has got his finger on the pulse, and, and the data like seems to look that way. That What has happened is evangelicals' political ethics has been turned on its head, right? It used to be about – I mean, evangelicals have, have traditionally been very strong on, like, you know, if you agree with them or not, they've at least been strong in saying, here are our principles. Like, you may disagree with our principles, but here they are. And we're going to try our best to sort of like follow them out, even if they lead to pretty uncomfortable places and even places that kind of cut against the cultural grain. And we're going to let the chips fall where they may. And, you know, in this election, they've just they have they flipped it around. There was a a candidate they needed to support. 
and they built the ethics backwards to get toward that end. So it's a classic, you know, ends justify the means kind of ethics, which has never been really what evangelicals have been about. Now, here's the pushback that I've heard to yeah. that argument. I'd like to hear you respond to it. There's There's been two modes of thought that I've basically heard, which is number one, you can never say who's a true evangelical. Just because someone reports to be an evangelical yeah. doesn't mean they follow Jesus or something along those yeah. lines. To which the usual response is, but look at all these prominent leaders in the evangelical yeah. community who's, you know, they have a lot of followers and they hold a lot of sway and they came out publicly and look at this minority of leaders who came out against yeah. Trump. Does that counter argument work? Like just between those two arguments, what yeah. do you... I mean, the leader thing is interesting. I I, I thought it'd be a, a good exercise to kind of, you know, go out and look at the last year's media coverage and do an actual tally. Like how many prominent, you know, evangelical leaders were for, how many were against... But my hunch is, just from kind of reading it, is that that split is a – it's a bigger divide among the leadership than it is among the grassroots, right? So the grassroots voted 80, 81% for Trump. It feels like there's more leaders – there's more of a divide than that, right? Especially if you consider female leaders in yeah. the evangelical world, Jen Hatmaker, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Right. And I saw a piece about how, at least on social media – those female leaders actually combine for like a much higher number mm. of people who follow them than these sort of old guard male oh, leaders. Yeah. Now, you could still argue there's plenty of baby boomers on the boards of churches who don't follow Jerry Falwell on Twitter. Right. But right, none right. The, you know, nonetheless, <laughs> he really influences their yeah. views. But I thought that yeah. was really interesting. No, it, it is interesting. But you know, I, I think it's right. I think there was a bigger debate among the leadership than there was in the pews. Though, and I think that's a really interesting dynamic to figure out. That that, and because one of the things I think has happened in the pews is that, I mean, really, you know, the big switch we had was with Reagan, right? That's when uh, evangelicals in the South became Republicans. They had before that been for generations Democrats, right? But it was really, and this is the thing that I really think it's important for evangelicals to wrestle with. I mean, whatever position you're taking, is that that switch though, what, what's, what kind of political scientists call the great white switch. That switch was over civil rights. And, and the reason that you get this kind of massive shift in the 70s is because the Democratic Party became the party of civil rights. And it became very against kind of Southern culture. And, and that conflict eventually combined with the Southern strategy of Republican operatives taking advantage of that really is what brought all this kind of evangelicals into the fold, into the Republican fold in the 70s and 80s. Um, and by Reagan, they were just Republicans. And then the problem has been that what has happened over time is that we've now had about three or four decades of Republican identity being sort of welded on to evangelical identity. So that oh, that's the subtitle of the autobiography of my childhood. Yeah, yeah, right. Where it becomes unthinkable, right, yeah. to vote for a Democrat. Like it, you would be shunned. Yeah, Dan yeah. Koch, a life. Ages ten to twenty, <laughs> subtitle: yeah. Republicanism being welded onto evangelical. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. I, almost all of my friends had that experience, yeah. right? And that that was it was it took us going to college and sort of getting liberalized to even consider if we could not be Republicans anymore. Yeah. Starting maybe fifteen years ago with, with my peers, right, right. But when a Republican becomes, along with being evangelical, part of your tribal identity it becomes really hard to think outside that box, right? And as I, I think that, that that's also something that evangelical leaders are reckoning with, is that in an election where they needed people in the pews to be able to think outside of that box, they were unable to do it. 
because they had been fed decades of this kind of tribal partisanship. Okay, so this leads me to a question about a possible hope going forward. And, and for the sake of this, I mean, not everyone who listens to this show would necessarily share yours or my views on this or even whether or not we share them. But supposing that you or I or a listener wants inclusion of minorities, wants social justice to succeed in however they define it, is there an opportunity here in the longer game Supposing Trump does not destroy the republic um, in four years. Is there an opportunity here? If Trump clamps down on torture, on a Muslim registry, on a a temporary ban of Muslims, if this starts to be seen as a civil rights issue and the Democrats already have a foothold on civil rights and they already just won the popular vote with an awful candidate, against an awful candidate, to be fair, right? But if they already do that, is there – I mean it might take a long time – policy-wise, governorship-wise, Senate-House-wise, to reverse the new majority. But is there a silver lining here for people who want those issues at the forefront where, in the future, if the GOP ignores these social justice issues, they're just not going to – they won't have enough to win anything? Yeah. Uh, Well, the first thing I want to say, this may be a prelude to the answer here, is that I do think we're going to have a real on-the-ground concrete test – of whether those evangelicals who are, are saying they voted for Trump but they held their nose, whether or not that is true. Uh, because I have no doubt in my mind with Steve Bannon at the top of the, you know, whispering in Donald Trump's ear, that we're going to see some policies that are targeting all kinds of vulnerable populations in the country. And so, like, a Muslim registry, I mean, this should be a no-brainer. Like, you don't have to be a Democrat or a Republican to like know that this is like against basic American values and civil rights. Um, you know, to be to be yeah. clear, you're talking about a general Muslim registry because yeah. so far that hasn't been proposed. The only one has been reviving NCRs, which was for non-citizens. This is yeah. something that I, I hate being the conservative yeah. guy in the room on this, but I, I want to keep hammering this that like that's not the same thing as the Muslim registry that Trump – talked about in the campaign. Yeah. So whether, I mean, the ACLU doesn't like it yeah. and I, you know, I, I don't like it, I think, but it's not a bipartisan wheelbarrow full of, you know, flaming yeah. manure. Yeah. It's, it's a Homeland Security question. You're talking about a general registry. Yeah, of Muslims. I'm talking about for Muslims in the country now, right. right? That's the one I think is like a no brainer. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, I, I realize it. We had this other program. It passed constitutional muster. It was you know, implemented program and people disagree about it. But I think if, if there is a call for like all Muslims in the country uh, to register with the U.S. federal government because they're going to be put on some kind of watch list, like I, I really do think like you don't have to be a Republican or Democrat to know like that's going to send us somewhere that like, we as the country just don't want to go. Now, um, OK, so if that doesn't happen, yeah. what are the other on the ground tests? Are you just talking about polling data or are you talking about concrete action among those evangelicals who, quote-unquote, held their nose. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it'll just be interesting to see, I mean, you know, because, like, the Southern Baptist Convention, for example, has been uh, supportive of a past citizenship for for immigrants who are in the country illegally. Uh, The Catholic Church has been, uh, the Catholic bishops have been supportive of that position. Uh, So now that a Republican is in the White House, do they hold on to that conviction, or do they back away from it? I mean, I think so... We'll we'll see, right? Um, but that's but, measurable. Yeah, that's measurable because they're on record saying like this is where we think our faith leads us to go on this question, um, and this, we think this is good sound policy. And then, but if they move on that for no other reason that they're 
is a Republican in the White House now, that'll be telling. So a lot of listeners to this podcast, and I would include myself in this, have strong religious beliefs. And yet we didn't like Trump and uh, we are worried about what he might do. And one of the things that we would like to do to start the conversation early with our friends who did support him, or in my case, my listeners, even if I've never met them in person, I want to establish a relationship where they and I can agree on some things that Trump might do, Mm -hmm. that if he does this thing, we are both in agreement that this is not what you voted for, and this is not what we should be like as Americans. You've mentioned the registry. Are there any other policies that policies or actions or like, it starts to get real fuzzy, right? Like is, is appointing Bannon that some people say yes. Some people say no. Uh, what about just today? It was reported that he tried to get the Argentinian leader to like get some construction projects through, you know, these things are fuzzy though. And it is our first business person as president. And so I doubt we're going to find obvious common ground on, on questions of sort of like free markets. So what besides the registry can I ask yeah. my conservative listeners or friends to agree with me on ahead of time? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> any, <laughs> any ideas? But, but, but here's the thing. I, I, I think the, but I think the impulse is right. Uh, that, that the danger would be that none of this gets, I think, talked about ahead of time, right? Because then you're just kind of in this drift and it's unclear. But I, I mean, I think one of the healthier things we could do you know, is to say, okay, this far or no more on this particular issue, right? And have some kind of agreement. And, and something like that, I think, is a big, bright red line. You know, and I do think it's not that hard to get cross agreement, liberal conservative agreement on some really basic, you know, the, the basic things. And so I think finding a few places like that, I'm not sure what they all are, but I think the the impulse to find them and then make that public, I think even ahead of time, right, as a kind of preemptive Strike. Um, there's been a lot of conversations about that around the AAR uh, and, and at universities. Like, so what do universities stand for? You know, where's the line between? Um, this is really tough. I mean, where's the line between what is protecting basic democratic values and civil society upon which our kind of shared republic life depends, and what's partisan? You know, um, and I, I think that's it's tough, but I think that it's not impossible to find some ways to have some of those conversations and at least have a few bright lines. Um, and if those lines become known, it's it's also kind of a shot across the bow to kind of it, you know any administration to say, okay, we know if we go here, we've got the Catholic bishops, the National Association of Evangelicals, the right. National Council of Churches are all now on record right. saying. Uh-uh, to this, it gives you less appetite as a uh, you know political leader to go knowing go into a, something you know you're going to have a fight. Um, that's not just left and right, but you know much kind of more complicated than that. So some concrete actions then for anyone who is a member of one of those large uh, religious organizations. Let your leaders in that organization know that you still want to affirm this negative, <laughs> affirm the negative, but you, you like the statements about a natural path to citizenship for people who are here and like, let them know. Yeah, I know Trump won, but this is so important to me. And I'm a member of your organization. I want you to know that because if that, if if those stay, then that gives political power to Republicans or Democrats to to know that they can count on some support. And and that's all sort of defense, right? That that kind of defensive actions, things we don't want to happen. Mm -hmm. It's also important to remember, like this might be a moment where, there actually are some policies that are that still have bipartisan support, believe it or not, in the country, mm-hmm. um, and there's some of them are surprising. Like a path to citizenship, for example, 
it's it's right there. Like fifty percent of Republicans support a path to citizenship, so it's mm-hmm. not quite like majority in that term. But it's it's you know it's like eight and ten Democrats, but it's it's half of Republicans wow. who support a path to citizenship. And if you add in permanent legal residency, you pick up another uh, twenty points of Republicans. So then you're talking about seventy percent of Republicans and only thirty percent supporting deportation. Um, so that's that's a place where actually on the ground there's a you wouldn't know that from the politics, right? But mm. but that's actually a place. Uh, raising the minimum wage is a place uh, where there's uh, paid family leave, paid medical leave for working families. Like these are all policies where people basically agree uh, on them. And oh, one other one too that I think is surprising. Um, we just put this up, and the New York Times printed it on their editorial page two weeks ago. That we found our last survey right before the election. There is like major bipartisan support for restoring voting rights to felons who have served their time. Um, Interesting. Yeah, it, it's sixty um, percent of Republicans support this policy. You do wonder if uh, the GOP that got Trump elected if their rhetoric will change that. But that's interesting to note that right now, because that that seems like it hasn't really trickled down to the voting population yet, but right. there's qu- quite a bit behind the scenes in the last yeah. four years or whatever. Yeah. Okay, I got two more things I want to talk All about right. before yep. we go. The first is, we forgot to have you earlier give a narrative on the left about the election results. Oh, That's left. wrong. You yeah. only did the right. So we, this is a depolarizing <laughs> yeah, yeah. show. We right, need to right. criticize yep. both sides. So on the left, um, I think the thing that I have pushed back the most on is analysis that I think people are tempted to give because they sort of give a kind of Marxist read uh, on things that this is all economic. Um, yeah. I, I think that's just wrong. Is, is it economic? Absolutely, right? Um, my, I'm so I'm you know sociologist by training, so I'm going to give a little sociology here. But um, there's this great debate between Karl Marx and Max Weber uh, about what drives social change. And Marx was, of course, is like people's economic interests. That's the main drivers of social change. That's what measure, you know, that's what motivates people to do what they do. And Weber's response to that was to say, yes, people's economic interests are essentially the engine of the train uh, that moves it down the tracks. But people's cultural interests are the switchmen that decide where it goes. Hmm. Um, and I think that that's right. Uh, you know, and so I think we got to find a way to hold both of these things together. And I, when I, I've read so many, you know, things on the left um, that are just like, it's economics, it's economics, it's economics, which in some ways is like back to Bill Clinton's, it's all economics, stupid, right? That's, mm. and like, that's, I think the worst lesson to learn um, out of this thing. I mean, what we all have to deal with is the economic challenges are very real, but if we don't wrap our heads around the kind of cultural tensions around this rapid cultural change, we're not going to get very far. Okay, last topic, and then I'll have just like one sort of button-in yeah. question. So the last thing I want to talk about is hysteria. <laughs> now, in, yeah. in that forum yesterday, uh, I don't know if you felt this, but it was like an hour and a half long, and there was about a 20-minute period that I felt palpably anxious, and that like there was just a yeah. group anxiety and almost a hysteria for a minute. It kind of passed as these group, you know, people kind of expended their anxious energy yeah. and started talking about solutions and whatnot. But my question is, uh, my fear, my constant fear since he won has been that the left will overreact in various ways that are easily proven false and that they will cry wolf. And then when something comes up that is a genuine problem, the right will not be listening for like kind of a good reason. So what in the data, here's my first question about hysteria, 
what in the data should calm our hysteria, if anything? <laughs> yeah, um, most of the trends that I talk about in the book are right. The one place I was wrong with a bunch of most other pollsters, I, I serve, I'm on record in the book saying Mitt Romney's was the last campaign where this kind of white Christian strategy is plausible, right? That there would be enough of those votes. Uh, to win. Obviously, there was one more rabbit that could come more. out of this hat. Um, but <laughs> yeah. I do think it's that that's I use that metaphor like uh, intentionally that I do think it, it at this point, given the demographic changes, it is a rabbit out of the hat. I mean, it's a pretty unlikely outcome to right? be repeated. And, I mean, because yeah. especially if you think Trump got more white evangelicals than Romney got. Yeah. Clinton won the popular vote yeah. by up to maybe 2 million people, yeah. and demographic changes every four years right. are in Democrats' favor as the platforms right. currently stand. Yeah, and we you know, we always see this, this lag. The voting population always lags the general population, right? So mm-hmm. we are already at a place where the voting population will be eight years from now. Um, so it takes a while because whites – Turn out at higher rates than non-whites do, and so it mm-hmm. takes. We have this kind of time machine effect in, in the in the ballot box, um, but you know, twenty twenty four. It's not that far away. Two election cycles from now, we will have our first election where even at the ballot box, there will be a minority of white Christian voters at the ballot box. So that's not that far away. And if you think about where we've been, I mean, Bill Clinton's election, seventy two percent of the country was white and Christian uh, at the ballot box in Bill Clinton's election in the in the ni- in nineteen ninety two. Um, so mm-hmm. we've gone from there, and we think the number is going to come around somewhere around 55 percent uh, this election cycle. So we've gone from 72 in the 90s, 55 now, and it'll be 48 uh, in 2024. I now want to have an entire depolarizing conversation about why white Christian America has become more po- obviously more polarized than it yeah. was when Clinton was elected. Yeah. But we don't have time for that. <laughs> so um, All right. looking at the data. Which groups, left or right, have the most soul-searching to do in terms of their own identities and who they want to be going forward or what they ought to be doing for the next four years? Yeah. Uh, Well, we talked about white evangelicals a lot. I think there will absolutely be a conversation about this. Like, what does the word evangelical mean? Uh, What are our priorities in politics? Like, what happened that we had, like— all these leaders speaking out, and then basically no difference at the ballot box. Um, so leadership, you know, and like a whole idea of like what political ethics do um, in a religious space. On the left, um, I think, and maybe not even on the left, but like another group, I think, is um, I, I do think Latinos uh, in the country. I mean, this was supposed to be the great, huge turnout of Latino voters. It turned out to be kind of muted. I mean, it looks not that different than it did in 2012. And our pre-election polling was suggesting that Trump might not break 20 percent with Latino voters um, and do worse than Romney. He actually did a little bit better than Romney among Latino voters. So what is that? What's that about? What does that mean? It's clearly not all about immigration. Right. So um, I think digging into that, like what was it that the small group of Latinos that did end up going for Trump that they saw uh, in Trump? And if, if it turns out that going to do a little bit better. I mean, I don't think they're going to do as well as George, George W. Bush got more than four and 10, you know, so we're still pretty low from George W. Bush's, um, Trump got 25. Is that right? I think it's a little higher than that. I think okay. it's like 29. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So, um, and, and, you know, they still adjust these things, but it, it's one quite, uh, three and 10, but it, it's, it was more than, more than Romney got. And mm-hmm. so that's, I think the little soul searching there, like figuring out what's that about, because everybody thought they all the anti-immigrant rhetoric was going to push that support into the basement, and it really didn't. My final question to you is just being rational and looking at the data, and then us all being very rational people listening to this. 
what should our overall end of the day take be yeah. about Trump's election yep. from the data? Uh, I would say that this election, maybe one short way of putting it, was more revelatory than revolutionary. All right, And what I mean by that is it basically laid bare some dynamics that have been with us from quite some time. Right, and it didn't. What it did not represent, even though the outcome is going to be kind of revolutionary, it didn't represent a kind of revolution at the level of data and the and the way there were no major coalitions that shifted. It didn't scramble the kind of general patterns that we are typically seeing um, in the election. So I think that's to me this is the big takeaway. Just kind of remembering, like we're, we have, it, it feels like a disconnect. Right, it doesn't seem like small shifts should be able to make these but huge that's how it works. outcomes. But that is in fact. Yeah. the way our electoral system uh, works. And I guess the other thing to say is that it will not be 2018. It will be 2020 before there's an opportunity uh, to do this just the way that, uh, so I've heard a lot of people at the conference who don't really track like who's up for reelection and what the likelihood is. And mm-hmm. uh, 2018 was never going to be a good year for Democrats. Uh, and it's likely to be even worse now. So just really because is, of who's up for reelection, up for re-election what county or whatever. Which ones are competitive. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, it, it's, there's only like one, six Republican seats up, for example. Only one of those is plausibly competitive and they've got a strong candidate there. The House looks even worse than that. Yeah. So, you know, it really will be 2020 before there's another referendum on like who we're going to be as a country and what yeah. direction we're going to go. Yeah. Robert, thanks so much for your time, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Where can people find you online? Yeah. What about the book? Uh, so the book is The End of White Christian America. It's up at Amazon and, you know, your independent bookstore, um, anywhere around, Powell's, uh, uh, other places you can find it. Um, and our stuff is uh, all up on the website at prri.org. And then what about Twitter? I follow you on there. Twitter, What's your I'm handle? Robert P. Jones uh, on Twitter. So. All right. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks. One thing I don't say very often is, you know, if you want to help the podcast out, probably the best thing you can do is just share an episode with somebody. If this or a previous episode seems like the kind of thing that one or two of your friends might be into, send it to them. I'd appreciate it. It'll help us get the word out and it will strengthen this community of people who are trying to depolarize together. Speaking of which, that community often lives in the Depolarized Podcast Facebook discussion group. So you can ask to join there and one of our moderators will approve it. And we have Twitter. I'm at Dan, K-O-C-H. You can email me at depolarizedpodcast at gmail.com. And you can listen to all the episodes on iTunes or at depolarizedpodcast.com. See you next week.